Parenthood is a time of so much change for you and your baby. A little reliable information can go a long way towards making this new life a good life. I'm Jessica Rolfe, and this is My New Life, a Love Every Podcast. While the science aligns on what's healthy for a baby's brain development, when it comes to how to care for our babies, there's a seemingly endless supply of competing perspectives. Parents are swimming in advice on sleep, feeding, and parenting philosophies. In this season of the podcast, we aim to provide a variety of curated perspectives so you can make informed choices for your family. Waldorf education. It's become increasingly popular in recent decades. Supporters champion the creativity and independent thinking that it fosters. But some critics say it fails to prepare children for the real world, where things like competition and technology cannot be avoided. Our guest today holds a doctorate in clinical psychology and has a master's in public health. Dr. Natasha Beck is also the mom of three children and pregnant with her fourth. Known to her social following as Dr. Organic Mommy, much of Natasha's parenting is built around the principles of Waldorf. I asked her why she chose a Waldorf school for her first child. There was so much purpose in everything that they did. There was so much thought, like down to what the the teachers wore, like the fact that there was just neutral clothing so it wouldn't overstimulate the child. The fact that they would wear this, you know, oversized apron with lots of pockets so that the kids, you know, would create and collect treasures to bring to their teachers to have their teachers keep them safe so that they could develop and nourish that trusting relationship and bond between teacher and child. I thought that was absolutely incredible. And that's really what drew me. I love those examples. Can you think of any more? Because I think so many of us parents are trying to decide what our approach might be for preschool. There's so many examples from, you know, the rhythm that they set from right when you like come in in the morning, having the kids sit there and help set the table for snack time. Having the kids actually help prepare the snack, they actually teach you uh, the days of the week through the schedule of the snack menu. So every Monday would be kale, quinoa, and lentils. Every Tuesday would be oatmeal with ground-up pecans and you know Ceylon cinnamon. Every Wednesday would be freshly made vegetable soup with vegetables from the garden. You know, every Thursday was homemade bread that the kids would actually knead out the bread and and roll it. Um, And so that's how they learn the days of the week because they're like, oh, it's Thursday. It's bread day. Wow. That sounds so amazing. That menu that you described is incredible. (laughs) So what what are they – so there's got to be a lot of time spent on meal prep and, you know, gardening and thinking about – these rhythms, what are they not doing that you see in other preschool classrooms? That's a great question. You're not seeing a desk, a sit down desk where the child is, each child is sitting at a desk, um, having like a, you know, a blackboard or whiteboard and they're learning. Um, and they're just facing one direction. You're not seeing that. And you're seeing a lot more engagement from the child in terms of like allowing them to reach their full capacity of what they can do. So 
knowing that a three-year-old can definitely help set a table, knowing that they can, you know, um, grind up the avocados to make guacamole, uh, letting, you know, your five-year-old know that they can actually take the dishes to the sink and wash the dishes, you know, and so that just helps build up that inner motivation and that confidence in that child. And so that by the time they get to the early grades, they have that confidence that they can actually do things because they're not being told, no, they can't help. No, they're, they're not capable. So some criticize this lack of emphasis on hard skills as really, you know, limiting a child from being able to have this formal writing or reading instruction, and it doesn't get introduced until age seven. I've even heard that teachers can tell stories with puppets to create language-rich environments, but that they're not actually using books or practicing Mm -hmm. holding a pencil. Can you talk to this a little bit more? Yeah. So there's so much thought again behind this. So let's take a step back in the early childhood. Why there's so much focus on painting is because they want the child to actually have this proper pencil grip. And what I found in my own practice when I was working and in the clinics that I was working at, I had so many kids that I had to refer out to for occupational therapy because they had improper pencil grip and they had difficulty with basic movements. Um, And that's because they weren't getting enough of that enriched play, um, that creative play or that outside play where they're digging um, and using all of their senses. And so their development is actually hindered because of it. And so when you think about it, you know, when they're actually painting with the kids, they're really focusing on how they're painting and they're telling a story with the paintbrush. Oh, this is the little dancer. We tap, tap, tap to get rid of the paint, the excess paint. And then we have them dance back and forth. And that's really to help teach them the proper pencil grip so that when they do transition to those early grades, when they're in first grade, they know how to properly hold a pencil. And so that's just one of the ways they actually put so much purpose and thought into what they're doing. And it's the same thing with like why they incorporate handwork you know, knitting and finger crocheting with the little ones in early childhood, when they're finger crocheting, they're really helping to develop those senses and to get that fine motor control really developed so that they're prepared for the grades. And so um, once they enter the grades, they actually make their own sewing needles and they start knitting, you know, their own like case for their flute. My son just did that. And so when he actually gets a musical instrument, he can know that, hey, I knitted my own case for that. And there's a lot of math involved because he has to count how many stitches that he has to have in each row. And then there's multiplication because he's got to figure out how many rows that he has to have. And so there's a lot going on and it may seem like, oh, they're just knitting, but there's so much more depth to it. That makes sense. And is this is this true that teachers tell stories with puppets and create this, you know, sort of language-rich environment more organically than actually read a storybook in a preschool classroom? Yes. That's also something I was always amazed with. The teachers would memorize these stories that were so rich and so detailed. You know, they start off in the early childhood with the puppets, and then as they get to kindergarten, they take away the puppets, and they're just really telling the story um, from memory. And it really helps develop those early literacy skills. 
And when you get to the grades, like the early, you know, grades when they're learning their letters and learning, you know, the alphabet, it's taught in such a beautiful way. It's not just like, all right, we're going to write the letter E over and over and over again. E is for elephant. E is for elephant. Um, But what they do is they tell a story behind that letter and they draw the shape of like, say, the letter S in the shape of a swan. And they tell this beautiful story about the swan. And so there's such a connection to that letter and there's more than just the intellect that's there. And it's because a letter is an arbitrary concept. It's just like, okay, it's a letter. What does that mean? You know, but if you're connecting it to different disciplines, including the arts where you're drawing, it resonates more with the child and they're more likely to take it in and not just have this rote memory of like, all right, I have to memorize this and then I'm going to forget it later on. Lots of brain growth happens in the first three years of life. But how much of who we become is predetermined by our genetics and how much is based on our early experiences? According to neuroscientists, it boils down to about 50-50. 50% genetics and 50% environment. But what exactly is this environment? What makes for an environment that is enriching for little brains? At Lavevri, we have brought together experts from all fields of early childhood development to answer this question. Neuroscientists, Montessori experts, occupational therapists, and speech therapists. For every stage from birth to age four, we have just the right activities, tools, and information so you can feel confident you are giving your child the very best start. So how can we bring some of the Waldorf philosophy around creativity to our homes? I think it really comes down to, you know, having loose parts, not toys that have so much just one purpose to them. And that's why like, you know, in Waldorf in the early childhood, they really have natural toys that are, you know, natural materials like wood and felt because they can be so many different objects. You know, you don't just have like a light up police car that it only does one thing. It just is a one, it's a police car and it goes one way. You know, you can have a block that can be a piece of food. It can be a car, you know, it can be part of a tower. There's lots of different purposes. It's multifunctional rather, the toys. Um, And so you want to try to find toys at home that have different functions that can play different roles. And I think that's one way to help foster that creativity at home. And then letting them explore outside, letting them correct, collect rocks or leaves or, you know, stones or shells or wherever, whatever you have at your disposal, because they can use that as pretend food. They can use that as money and when they're selling something. And they can take pieces of paper and just rip them up and say, oh, here is the ticket for coming into the store or whatever it is. Uh, there's a lot of imagination there. So you really don't need a lot. You know, you just want to have toys that have multiple functions. So in Waldorf, screen time is a huge no-no. So like no movies, no devices, or any other screens are allowed at school or at home. So what's the rationale behind that guideline? So I think the problem comes to play when kids are constantly being stimulated 
by so much media and so much outside influence that it really hinders their development with play. And play is the key to letting them be successful later in life in terms of their academics and every other avenue in their life. You need to have creative play. And the problem is, is that when you have media, let's, let's give you an example. Say a child is watching Frozen, okay? Very popular movie, and I love the movie myself. I can tell within five minutes whether or not a child has actually seen Frozen just by watching their play because the child who's watched Frozen will actually imitate what they see in the movie. And the child who hasn't watched Frozen will actually create their own characters. So it's really fascinating to see how that play comes into reality with a child. You know, they mimic what they see. And if they're constantly being told by a screen of what to play or how to play, you know, they're just going to copy that. And so there's a real lack of creativity there. Kids, I think the latest data was in 2020 that kids who are eight and up are getting over seven hours of TV a day. That's a lot, you know, and that, that's taking away from their ability to play, to create, to imagine. Well, I have definitely seen that in my six-year-old daughter. You know, I think a lot of her imaginative play is around Frozen and it kind of makes me sad. You know, I wish that we hadn't introduced Frozen to her, but it's, it's, it's done. What age do you recommend, you know, from, from your parenting and from the Waldorf philosophy of introducing some media or is it never? No, it's definitely not never. And I don't want parents to feel regret or guilt that they've introduced media to their kids. But if we're talking about a general age range in Waldorf, they like to really not introduce media until about, you know, nine years old. But I think it de- it's dependent on every family and every family is different. And, you know, that your Waldorf school would work with you. Um, so for us, you know, I've introduced definitely some media to my seven-year-old, um, but we're very mindful of how we use it. You know, we use it when we're on long car rides or long plane rides, um, or sometimes, you know, he'll get it when my girls are napping and there's some quiet time that he can have. Um, but content really matters, you know? Um, and they've done tons of studies, even looking at like something as stimulating as the Powerpuff Girls um, versus Mr. Rogers Neighborhood. And they look at like the frames per second. If you look at Mr. Rogers Neighborhood, it's really slow. You know, it's like not even panning quickly, you know, when you like move with Mr. Rogers over to, you know, his next area in his home. Um, whereas Powerpuff Girls, it's like, bright lights right in your face, constantly stimulating you. And so you're going to require more of that. And so when I tell parents, you know, to be mindful of their screen time, I say, also think about content for your little ones. Like I love, you know, Little Bear and um, Mr. Rogers Neighborhood. And I love the movie, The Fox and the Child, you know, because I'm, I get it. Like sometimes we just need to survive. You know, I, I can't have my kids in the kitchen right now. I've got to get this done you know, let's put something on so it'll keep them distracted or I've got to get my work done and I can't be distracted. I've got to be on a phone call. So of course, you know, use it in those moments that you need it. Um, but try not to use it like say if your child's having, um, trouble eating and you just want to put them in front of a screen so that they'll actually eat more. 
um, but they're not actually being connected to what they're eating. And so um, there's no feeling of, okay, I'm going to appreciate this food or I like the flavor or the texture or whatnot because they're passively just watching TV and being very distracted from it. So I think you just have to be mindful of when you introduce it and how you use it and the content. Thank you so much for being with us, Natasha. Thank you so much for having me. I really had a great time discussing all of this. Visit the Love Every blog for more on parenting approaches, including Waldorf and Montessori. Dr. Natasha Beck can be found at Dr. Organic Mommy. You've been listening to My New Life. If you think this episode might be helpful to a fellow parent, please share. And if you'd like to learn more about the topics discussed in today's show, head over to loveevery.com. That's L-O-V-E-V-E-R-Y.com. I'm Jessica Rolfe. Thanks for listening.